Hi everyone and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and I'm joined here with my deputy editor at NMA, Jack Gilbert. And today we're talking about the 34 private equity-backed advice firms and how they performed in 2022. We're joined today by Brian Hill, Head of Strategic Exit at Acquisitions Broker, The Exit Partnership. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, and uh, Jack, thanks so much for joining us as well. My pleasure. Uh, we published a piece last week, uh, which our listeners can find on the New Model Advisor website, where we compiled a database and analysis of all the 34 private equity-backed firms. Um, you know, first of all, Jack, I'd like to bring you in and just, could you explain to me the process of compiling this database and, you know, all the analysis we've received, as well as some of the reaction? Yeah, thanks, Zach. Certainly. I mean, it was a it was a timely exercise. It took many hours sitting in front of spreadsheets um and going through the data and at times it felt like it was never going to get published because there's always things were changing and new things we were finding so it was a very long process um but essentially what we did so there's four of us so yourself zach helped with it um alicia and Celine and myself we all worked on it and it was a um it was an actual uh follow-up piece to uh analysis we did last year where we looked at the 29 as it was then private investment backed advice firms we followed that this year by basically doing the exercise all over again to see how things had changed from the last time we did the research. Um, so for a start, we, we found that uh, since last time we did it, there's five new private investment-backed um, consolidators or advice firms had, had joined the list. Um, and then it was just a question of going through the data, picking out what had happened since we last did the research to look at things like acquisition numbers, um, what had changed from their businesses in terms of adding new personal integration, white label platforms or DFMs, any other kind of new events for new financing, new private equity firms coming in or backing these these businesses. Um, so yeah, to really try to get under the skin of these firms and, and find out what was going on and how 2022 looked for these businesses. Um, so it was a very lengthy process, took kind of several months, several months really to go through it all. Um, but I think since we published it has had a good reaction and it's been pleasing to see some of um the responses we've had from people and and obviously you know any readers out there please email us to tell us if you think it was a terrible piece absolutely i think that what really struck me as well when we were writing it was the pace of change as as you said you know every week it seemed that we could add more and um i think it was said the other day that if we wanted to we could just keep doing this forever exactly yeah. it was one of those processes where there's always more things you can add to it um, I mean, I think one of the key differences we did this time round was we we looked we got someone within Citywide who's you know very good at data, much better than I am, to pick out FCA register data, look at the number of advisors at these businesses. Um, so we were able to compare how many advisors um, each private equity backed business had the start of 2022 and the end of 2022. And this is it's not a perfect barometer because you know I'm sure Brian could talk about this, but because advisors are retiring and um, and things, but I think the number of advisors that a PE-backed firm has, advice firm has, is a good indicator of how how much presence, how much market share that firm has. Um, so that really gave us a, a good indication about how how much growth these firms were were enjoy were saw in 2022. And some firms saw you know, rapid growth; they saw you know, the number of advisors go up by 70, 100 percent during the year. But then three firms actually saw their number of advisors decrease during the year. Uh, and there was, I think, about six who saw less than 10% growth. Um, um, 
you know, and, and I want to bring in Brian at this point, if I can, um, you're well placed to tell us about the process of buying and selling. Um, you know, first of all, what was your immediate takeaway from the piece and did the analysis reflect what you're seeing on the ground? Thanks, Zach. Yeah, this, this piece of analysis was really interesting uh, when we looked at it. And it, as uh, Jack said, it built on uh, last year's uh, data. Um, and it probably raises more questions than, than, than it answers in, in, in many ways. Uh, but one of the key aspects being uh, behind the scenes uh, on this is that not all PE firms are the same. Uh, and, and there's uh, I ran a, st- a straw poll on a Facebook group I'm a member of uh, just this morning. And by no means is it representative of the uh, financial advisor uh, community. You know, there's only about 30 or 40 advisors replied. But um, 80% didn't think that uh, PE uh, acquisitions was good for clients. 20% said the jury was out. <laughs> Nobody thought it was a good idea. Um, so there's really a real a huge misunderstanding by advisors as to what PE looks like. Uh, you know, if, if you have a PE-backed firm, what actually uh, happens there? And, and it seems that many of them think it's just a really bad idea. Now, being behind the scenes, actually, we get to see both you know, all the, the, the good, the bad, and, and the ugly uh, as well. They're not all built the same at all and they've all got uh, very different objectives uh, they're all funded in very different ways they've got different integration plans and they seek different outcomes for their uh, for, the, for the firms that are looking to acquire so there, out of the 34 there you're going to get because you've seen one PE firm be a PE back firm doesn't mean you, that they're all the same you're going to get 34 different versions of that uh, of that same thing that makes for a really interesting um, marketplace that's interesting. One, one question, Brian. I mean, I, I think I guess I think that's a fair point on the kind of all this P houses being different. Um, but surely, aren't they all looking for the same thing ultimately? Aren't they all looking for a payout in you know three, five, seven years, whatever, however many years it's going to take? Surely they're all looking for the same yeah. end goal. Yeah, there's often they will have a five to seven year um, runway, if you like. But generally speaking, there are two different types of uh, PE back firm. You've got the uh, let's call it maybe the conveyor belt type of um, aggregator. They just want to gather funds under management and that's their key focus. Uh, Funds under management, cut costs, advisor out as quickly as possible, replaced perhaps by a lightweight um, advisor process, if you like, maybe remote based. You know, the the main thing there is cutting costs and adding uh, recurring revenue. So you've got the conveyor belt aggregator type uh, and there's nothing wrong with that in itself if you're already running that type of business uh, as an advisor. Uh, but if you're not running that type of business, then there's, then clients are, and staff are probably going to have a bit of a cognitive dissonance if you try and sell out uh, to that type of um, um, payback firm. But you also then get the what we would call the buy and build type of uh, uh, payback firms. And often you'll see with these, and this is how it ties into the data that Jack was talking about, You'll see increases in numbers of uh, advisors who are uh, who are joining. Now, wh- one of the challenges with the data, um, just reflecting on that, is that it doesn't always show, and, and, and it'd be quite difficult to do that. I expect quite difficult to show um, which advisors came over from acquired firms and which advisors they've got there, which are just grown organically, uh, let's say. But those firms in the buy and build type of payback firms. Are looking for strong management teams and looking to build hubs 
which then acquire spoke firms within them. And actually, they're looking to keep the, the high quality of advice um, that those firms have got. They're looking to keep that, to retain that, very, very focused on consumer duty, very focused on the on the value that's that, that's brought. And one of these piggyback firms, and I won't mention who it is, remunerate their staff based on the um, what we call a passionate advocacy score that clients give them. So based on clients' reviews, the staff the, the staff bonus, the advisor's bonus, and the other staff employees' bonus is based on how well the clients feel they're being looked after and that's a very that's very brave and it's a very very strong value proposition so um and, and on the other side you get those piggyback firms that perhaps don't care quite as much uh so there's a, a huge variety there zach right across the board yeah i appreciate that um and i appreciate you know um, you explaining differences in um pro equity backed firms and what they're looking for um but as, as we sort of said, you know, growth is the aim of the game, really, for, for both types, um, for the buying builds and your sort of conveyor belt, let's gather an AUM together. And yeah. we saw that, you know, some of the largest firms saw this acquisition growth slow. I was wondering what your thoughts were on why that is the case um, and whether firms may have grown too quickly, as it were. Yeah, one of the key uh, um, findings within the report really was the amount of debt. Uh, the P the EP firms have behind them, and you know some of that can be uh, seems to be quite expensive. Uh, so what we are finding is that there are less PE backed firms coming into the space. Uh, there's another five that are being added, but we don't see you that name them at all, Brian. Any names there? Uh, so there's uh, I think if people go to the uh, go to the uh, excellent table that Jack and the team you guys have put together, they can see on there. Um, but yeah, there are. A, a number of out of those new PE back firms that are coming in, we don't really see that they're going to increase significantly. I'll be surprised if there is another five next year. Really, yeah. Um, they, but but the ones that we come across, they've got that five to seven or longer time, longer year time frame. Um, one thing that came out was that can come out is you know where people say well they're not profitable, where uh, or that they've lost money. Don't forget that the PE firms uh, don't just have. Uh, you know, financial advice in their portfolio. Very often they'll have other um, types of firm in there, which may well impact their uh, profitability. So I think that's a useful, but not a, a directional metric uh, uh, on there. But one of the key things that we're, we're seeing, again, we did a webinar with um, uh, M&G just a, a couple of weeks ago. And we, again, there was probably just under 500 advisors on board there. Uh, we asked the question, who's thinking of, who's going to be exiting within the next five years. 15% of those advisors on that call were thinking we're going to be exiting in the next five years. That's 60 paydays, 50% are looking to exit. So what we're going to find is that there's potentially less big buyers coming in and there's more people looking to sell. So actually, we, we might well find that instead of having lots of buyers for each seller, as we have at the minute, uh, we're going to have, well, maybe we're going to have far fewer buyers and far more sellers. So we could be looking at a bit of a sea change in the next two to five years, uh, I, I would have thought. So that's going to be key where, where the PE firms are going to be con concerned. They're really going to look to establish their hubs um, over the next two years uh, as these uh, uh, these uh, firms are looking at exiting. 
And I, I think I'll just, well, well, I'll just come in there a second, Brian. I mean, one one of the things we we spoke to a few people about who, who kind of all agree, really, that we will see consolidation of, among the consolidators. So that some of the piggyback consolidators will start to buy the others. Um, I guess part of that is just a, a scale question of, you know, to get to where they want to be. Buying small IFAs is only going to get you so far. You need to make some big acquisitions. And because there's such a plethora of firms now that kind of doing those bigger acquisitions of the, your peers is pretty much the only way to, to go about getting to uh, some of the targets that they've set themselves. Do you think that's going to happen, this kind of consolidation of consolidators? Do you think it's going to happen soon or do you think we're going to see this in a few years' time? Uh, I do think it's going to happen. And I do think it's going to happen over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, I don't think we're going to wait five years to see it. I think we're going to see some consolidation uh, in the marketplace. And what we are finding is this, that you know, the small IFA, they're really small, if you like micro IFA, where they've got less than um, 20 million about funds under management, uh, assets under management, that they're really going to struggle to uh, be to be a, to sell. Uh, because it's because there's so much work involved in in acquiring uh, even just the assets of a uh, of, of a firm that you know that the, the, there are easier fish to fry uh, than that. So we're going to see some consolidation at the top end over the next couple of years, almost, almost certainly. Um, we're going to see some of those PE firms reach the point where they need to then that they, they've achieved momentum, they've achieved their goal, and they can then going to sell perhaps to the next level of PE. And that's just that's just natural. There's nothing to be to, to, for people to be really that worried about. It's just a quite normal state of affairs with uh, with PE, and PE brings a lot of advantages to businesses as well. It's it's not a such, such a negative thing that uh, people need to be so worried. That doesn't mean they shouldn't do their due diligence, of course. Uh, and uh, advisors need to really um, when they're looking at. Uh, uh, potentially being acquired by a, a PE firm or a PE-backed firm is to do their own due diligence. One of the key things there, uh, I appreciate I'm going off piece slightly here, um, but it might be useful just to understand uh, the metrics of how some PE, uh, PE firms are, uh, work, is that when they are acquiring, are they targeted on the money which is available or are they targeted on the money that's spent? There's a key difference there. So if they're targeted on the money that's spent, you're going to find that as they get toward the each end of their reporting quarter, they're going to be scrap potentially scrabbling around to find firms to buy. And so a, a PE firm which is uh, targeted on money spent, it's, it's probably a good argument to say that, you know, is the, is the quality there on the firms that they're buying as opposed to, 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 to sorry, the other way around. Um, on firms where the money is available, they haven't spent it, they're still measured on it. Whereas if they're just measured on how it's spent, then you're probably going to get a higher quality of acquisitions. You may get a higher quality of acquisitions uh, with that. But we're going to see consolidation at the top end over the next couple of years, uh, I expect. Um, and the PE firms becoming more choosy as to who they are looking at having in their portfolio. Yeah. And, you know, bringing in consumer duty for a second as well, we spoke about um, the integration um, or lack of, in some firms, case um, among some of these consolidators. Do you think this will pose a problem for the rules if you've got different fee models, different charging structures um, yeah. with and how that all, you know, ta tallies up with 
fair value and proving that you've done this across all of your um, you know, models. Yeah, yeah, because your duty just highlights the importance of of integration and acquisitions. You know, for an advising firm to say, look, I'd whenever I'm bought, I want everything to stay the same. I want the fees to stay the same. I want the investment philosophy to stay the same. I want, you know, it's it's just not realistic. You know, you're being acquired by a firm which is much bigger, uh, and they're not going to suddenly change everything or to to match your own firm, and they're certainly not going to to um, uh, to do that. Uh, you know, you're going to get a lot of synergies. Uh, if you don't have a lot of synergies, then perhaps you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Uh, but, you know, 70-80% similarity is going to be similar. And consumer duty um, is absolutely, you know, num- one of the number one aspects to look at from the uh, from the buying firm. Now, um, as, as, as uh, sellers are, are going along, they're looking at this, they need to look and see, you know, is the fee structure going to be similar? Um, is the way they look after clients similar? We have a phrase at the Exit Partnership, uh, which is um, culture before cash. Culture before cash. So look at the culture. How do they look after clients? Do they look after them in a similar way? Is the fee structure kind of kind of, kind of similar? Um, and what this will help people do is uh, sellers do is to have a focus on how they segment their clients and where's the value that they provide for clients. And what we found over time is that um, the, the the firms which are easiest to integrate are those that have a simple standardized service which delivers um, a, a service to, to their clients consistently and profitably and is valued by their clients. And if you can get those to meet up, to match between the PE firm and the, the seller, that's, that's got to be a good thing. But some, some advisors are, you know, um, haven't really given much thought to consumer duty. Many have. Uh, it's going to be really, really important to work out post-integration for for the post-integration period how clients are not disadvantaged and how they're advantaged by the consumer duty that fits that sits within both the buyer and the seller. Well, just on that integration point, um, Brian, I had a conversation with um, Paul Feeney the other day, who's former CEO of Quilter, now is going to Scarrett's to lead that. PE-backed venture, he was essentially saying he was shocked by how little integration he had seen amongst some of the consolidators um, who he was kind of speaking to before he went to Scarrett's. Uh, he was basically saying that they were, they'd been so much, you know, land grabbing, he called it, where you know, IFA has been brought up by the consolidators, but there'd been no post-acquisition integration of those firms. There was different fee models, different technology, different investment propositions, yeah. different platforms being used. I just wondered if that tallied up with what you'll see in the market has there been a, a short like has there been a a real lack of integration among some of these 34 firms some of these firms yes they will um that their view is just keep doing what you're doing you know uh, they'll do the due diligence and say just keep doing what you're doing uh in terms of the fee structure the investment philosophy uh compliance and, and such like um the fca are just not so keen on that that's, they've made that very clear. They're just not so keen on that. You know, if you th- were thinking of running an, a di- you know, you're running a different business, you're running, I don't know, restaurants. If you've got one um, local pizza parlor, if that's what it's called, uh, you've got one high-end uh, restaurant. You've got a another one that's uh, by the, you know, uh, a cafe by the sides of the road. It makes it very, very difficult to run these th- those restaurants. And the same really applies to our financial advice firms. 
the idea that you can run a, a successful business and everybody is run, doing their own thing, I just don't think works at all. You know, we, they need to have consistency. I'm just going back to that, what, what I was saying before, simple standardized services, deliver consistency, consistently to clients that value it. You can't, it's, it's extremely difficult to deliver something consistently if everyone's doing something different. Uh, so that alignment, as Pofini uh, was saying, absolutely needs to happen. I'm quite sure that um, it, on, in two things. Number one, a financial advisor, selling financial advisor would be quite naive to think that the PE firms or the PE back firms or any acquirer is going to leave things as they are. They're just not. It just makes no commercial sense to do that at all. You know, they need to be seen from the same home sheet. Uh, and any uh, and a PE back firm or otherwise thinking that they sh should just leave things as they are. Um, again, they're going to miss out on the economies of scale. They're going to miss out on the commercialities of, of scale um, uh, as well. So that post-sale um, post integration needs to look at how you can have consistency of service delivered for, for clients right across the board. And I'm quite sure that we're going to see, we need to see a sea change on that, don't we? That has to change. Um, well, that seems like a great note to end on. Um, you know, Brian, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. This has been fascinating. And thank you so much, Jack, as well. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself, uh, Brian Hill of The Exit Partnership, and Deputy Editor Jack Gilbert of New Model Advisor. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at nma team at citywire.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.